Hey everybody, welcome to the iFreak Show. Today on our panel we have Michael Holt. How's it going everyone? And this is James Zuber. I'm calling in from Minneapolis, Minnesota. We have a guest today. Please welcome Paul Samuels. Hey. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So Paul, can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself? Hey, so yeah, uh, I'm a developer from Leeds in the UK. Um, so a bit of a time difference from you, you guys, but I've been doing iOS for around nine years now. Uh, and I guess the kind of call to fame at the beginning of that is that I, I attended a course that was delivered by Dave Verwer. So it was a very intense five-day course, but uh, I came out of it at the end with my head throbbing. But um, yeah, it's kind of set me up for the next nine years, really. So it's a little bit about me. Okay, so you took a course with Dave and you came out an expert iOS programmer. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Definitely not an expert at the end of it, but <laughs> it definitely set me up. Um, but cool, uh, we brought you on the show to talk about a blog post that you wrote about tying things together. Can you tell us a little, little bit about that? Sure, so um, there's literally nothing new here. This is it's not a new idea, but it's essentially a blog post that kind of goes through the process of how you'd write some code that you could reuse across uh, an iOS application, a website, and potentially a, a command line interface. It's it's it, it's kind of it's looking at just how we would modularize code um, and it really gives you quite a lot of kind of abilities for taking things to the next level if you can get your code to run in all those different environments then you know it really opens up a load of potential around um, all kinds of tooling that you can build so that's that's kind of the the post that I wrote and it was really kind of tying together um, a few of my previous posts around, you know, reusing code from an iOS application in a command line interface. Um, just the general idea of we should be writing command line interface tools if it kind of makes sense, because sometimes you don't want to go write a full blown app just to test something. Um, and yeah, just uh, there's been a bit of a theme going on. So in my last kind of few blog posts, and this is the one that kind of brought them all together, really. Okay, that's pretty cool. So what are some of the, the, the takeaways from the, the blog post? Um, so I guess the, the takeaways that um, the kind of, a lot of the, the kind of new trends about, everyone seems to be doing a lot of modularization these days. Uh, Swift Package Manager came along that enables packaging your stuff up a bit better. And now that we've got kind of the ability to deploy to Linux, 
um, you can really, you, your code becomes a lot more portable and you can start to realize some, some really cool tooling actually. Um, so some, some kind of examples that um, come up with are the company where I, I've just left, um, they had a backend team. So that was divorced from the client teams and the backend team had multiple kind of clients and stakeholders. So they didn't necessarily have a contract that we could always depend on. So what was really good is that we could write our kind of production code that we use within our iOS application. And we had the potential now to put that code inside a container and give it to that team so that they can now put that in their CI pipelines. Uh, and that, that just kind of gives you the ability to start to automate the whole process so that actually the kind of upstream team wouldn't be allowed to deploy changes that would break the client. Um, and that's just one of the kind of many use cases that um, we didn't quite get there in that team because there wasn't necessarily enough buy-in from, from kind of management, but it's definitely um, would have been a really nice use case. Um, and it, it was almost across the line. It just needed um, buy-in from the kind of upstream team to integrate those kind of components. Okay, Let, let's step let's step back a little bit and talk about some some of the some of the terms that you threw out there that some of our readers may not be familiar with. You, so you're writing a client app, which is like an iOS app, Mac app, something like that. You talked about a contract. What what's the, what is the contract? Okay, so when when we we're, we're getting data from our kind of backend CMS or data feed, uh, the contract there would be that they they kind of assure that they will return the data in a structure and a format that the client understands. So you can, so imagine they're returning JSON, the client app is going to expect certain keys to be present in, in the right places for it to actually be able to interpret that data. So the, the kind of issue is because these teams are separate, um, there's every chance that the backend team could make a change where you know, they remove a key that the client depends on. Um, and that just means that when we come to pass that JSON, we're no longer going to be able to understand it. Um, if we've written our clients in a kind of um, resilient way, then we won't crash. We'll just kind of filter away that data. But that's those are the kind of issues that I think are probably slightly more dangerous for us because if you get a crash and you've got some kind of crash monitoring in, you're going to get a a nice red flag that something's gone wrong. But if you're creating a resilient app and you're kind of filtering out those bad data entries, unless you're logging that anywhere, then you're gonna end up, you know, just the app will, will work, but you're not surfacing the data. So a, a concrete example of that is, imagine we're running a shop and there's 10 items in our shopping list, but if two of those are not formed correctly, so imagine they didn't have a price, the app will not render those two, two items, but it won't, it won't crash. So the app will look like it's working and the end user will probably think it's still working, but actually there's two, two items that are not being rendered there. So it's kind of how, how do we kind of escalate some of those issues? Okay. Um, that makes a lot of sense. we I think we, especially if you're working with a different team, like they could just change their stuff and 
your, your stuff your, your stuff breaks because like hey we need a price to display this and it's not there um so how do, how does the the stuff that you put in place uh, fix that problem so it depends on what level you kind of deploy it so if you could get your um so there's kind of proactive and there's kind of reactive style of doing this. So the reactive one is is probably the simplest. We can deploy our code into, um, I don't know, some kind of cron job or something that will just scrape the web service and just continually check that it can parse the data down. Uh, and if it can't, then it would, you know, maybe ping off an email to someone to say, we're unable to parse this data now. But then the proactive monitoring would be or the proactive approach would be if we was to if we can get this component the the kind of production code put inside the upstream team's continuous integration pipeline then we can make their builds fail if they're going to break downstream clients if that makes sense okay so you're in a company you've got a different team that handles the services and you're actually creating code that's going to be part of their CI pipeline. And you're going to say, hey, this is what we need from your service. This is the contract. If this breaks, we can't use it. And you're actually putting it in their CI pipeline. So it breaks their build if it doesn't, if they break something. Yeah, so that's, that's definitely, so that's one way of doing it. Another way, you could be slightly less active and they could call out to your tool and they could just flag. So it may not prevent them from actually building. Um, and then obviously th these are kind of, these are the problems you don't really want to have, but this is, this is often where you end up with in bigger companies in an ideal world, you'd literally be sat on a desk opposite or next to the web team or the team providing these services. And you'd be able to just have the conversation in the first place. Um, so this is, this is kind of when stuff's broken down a little bit, um, and you're trying to salvage what you can, I guess. No, that makes sense. If you're working with a small team, you might be working right next to the the, you know, the backend engineer. Um, but you know, in a, in a bigger team, like the other team, could be literally anywhere in the world. So you don't really have day-to-day uh, -day contact. They, they might be asleep. They might be in a completely different time zone than you. Um, with with the thoughts that you've written about in your blog post, what um, how can we organize our code so we can uh, build tools like this so i think the, the the kind of most obvious things for 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 client developers is to not import kind of ui kit is probably the the biggest thing it, it's keeping our imports minimal so as soon as you import something like ui kit that means you can't deploy it to linux anymore um, and that that's kind of that's really helpful if you want to build some of these toolings that you can you can deploy anywhere. So it's really keeping an eye on what you're importing. If you if it's available through Swift Package Manager, then you're probably okay. Um, and then I guess it's just just creating it's using modules to create the, the proper boundaries. I guess so you shouldn't be aiming to have you know nice layers of of code that aren't just big balls of mud really um so it's kind of it's where people have been going anyway so modularization has been pretty popular recently some of it's to do with getting compile time down some of it's to do with um getting clean boundaries between the different responsibilities within your app 
uh, and I, I guess this just plays to that. If you've got your networking client nicely separated from your business rules, you've got the choice of, do I want to put the networking client in a separate app and deploy that? Or you can, you can even build it up and say, actually, I'll build a separate tool that has the networking client and the business rules because that's probably important for that particular tool to see not only going through the network, but also applying some of the business rules. Um, okay. Um, can you walk through like, uh, like an example of like a um, kind of abstracted networking client with business rules? Like how would that work in a, either, either in a CI system or your self-hosting like a, a server that's for testing? Sure. So <clears throat> I think in the, in the blog post, um, there's actually, there is a GitHub repo um, that accompanies it. And there's, there's essentially um, a shared folder and that's containing the, there's the that's just a, a really simple client. That's just, in this particular example, it's interacting with a, a JSON placeholder website. And that's literally just wrapping up the, the kind of network request. And then I guess, that, that would probably be one module. And then if you wanted to add some business rules to this, you might then create a separate module that would import that networking client. And that might apply some kind of filtering or whatever business rules you want. Um, and you, you can then take those two pieces together as the kind of the, the kind of bigger package that manages your business rules and your networking to interact with that service. So in the actual, in the blog post, um, I've kind of taken this shared, shared kind of module and placed it once within a command line application, which is just give it a, I believe it was just a single command. And all that's going to do is spin up a, a dispatch main, a dispatch main loop and, you know, run the network request and then exit. And then the other use case is, um, it's just been imported into a, a vapor web app. And in the vapor example here, it's, it's essentially, it's, this is for, imagine if you're an on-call engineer. So if you're supporting your app and you get called out at, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night, it'd be really useful if you don't have to fire up the application itself in the first instance. Um, what you might be able to do is just go to a website that's using the exact same production code under the hood um, and in the example, what it actually shows you is on the left, it shows you the raw JSON and on the right hand side, it shows you the, the kind of past JSON and you can see what the application understood and what it didn't. Uh, and then above both of those, it's kind of showing the errors that were, were actually raised during the JSON decoder process. So if you as an on-call engineer without actually firing up the app, you know, logging in, trying to reproduce stuff, you can just navigate to a website and then get you know some some useful diagnostic information about um oh this didn't pass this information because it's missing this particular key so these are all kind of things that um i imagine would be super useful if you, you're ever getting called out at 11 o'clock at night so um yeah that that's that's kind of a high level run through of how you'd uh, modularize it to get get this kind of multiple use case. That's that's pretty neat. Um, question I have though is, is where does this 
structure, this this design pattern, kind of break down? What are the what are the restrictions or the uh, the fallacies of this design? Um, so maybe this is a case where I've I've not run up against it yet, but not really seen any kind of real disadvantages because the I mean this all stemmed from um, problems I've had in the past where we had a single application that was you know just one 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 binary essentially one blob of code one target and it was impossible to debug stuff and in the past what i've then done if i need to interact with a, a networking client is i've probably written a separate tool in in ruby and this the problems you're going to get there are that actually it doesn't matter how hard you try you're, you're using different run times different stacks so there's no guarantee that you're going to be doing stuff the same way um so those are the kind of problems that we're trying to overcome and then actually organizing code in this way um i think you can it's, it's like any new technique you can go too far so you can end up creating hundreds of modules um and then you probably end up in the the node world but if you kind of if you if you're drawing your boundaries sensibly and you, you're keeping track of the architecture as you go um it's probably not that bad. I think it's one of those things where if you sat down and said, right, I'm going to draw the architecture of my app before you start, you, you're in for a bad time. What you kind of need to do is evolve these things as you go and you'll find that you did make some, some modules really well and you'll find that some of them you need to, you know, redraw the lines because you've just, you've either got it wrong or there's maybe a new abstraction to add in there. So, um, yeah, I, I've I've not come up against it yet, but may, maybe I have. But the friction I've I've felt is just okay. We need to just change this boundary slightly, rather than oh, this whole process is not going to work anymore. Right, right. Um, well, so one of the things that I'm thinking of uh, specifically would be um, you've got uh, cross-platform code here that is expected to run on um, an iOS platform. Uh, uh, command line interface platform and then a web platform and the the web platform is, in my mind is is like an always connected always online uh, platform whereas a command line interface or even an app um, has the potential for being offline and uh, and could possibly break down this the structure I guess that in that case like you said you'd you'd probably put in some extra code that handles those situations that uh, might throw errors or you know display um, information to the user, indicating that they're offline and and you know they won't have full functionality, right? Yeah. So I I guess it it depends on the use case. So the the kind of the things I have been using this for at the moment um, for kind of you know for putting things in CI pipelines or monitoring or this kind of on call support tooling these have all really been acting as just proxies. So it's, it's just hitting the backend service, but through our kind of production code in the middle. So that, that inevitably can be quite stateless as well. So in the example, I've done a kind of vapor web app, but there's nothing inherently stateful about that. There's no um, database or any caching. It's literally just calling out. And, and yeah, in, in some cases, you're going to want some state and maybe that's where this would break down. But I guess in, in the use cases I've had so far where um, we're essentially just acting as a proxy, this is, this has all been fine to kind of remain stateless and just 
always execute those network requests as a kind of a one-off deal, I guess. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm trying to envision how, like I'm gonna write my network client, you know, with maybe some business rules. So if, I, if I'm writing my client, there's gonna be three things that are using it. Get the, the, the iOS app, we've got a command line tool that someone can just come in and write command line tools for a test. And we've also got the Vapor, um, you know, a Vapor app, a web app. How do, how do we write code that will work for all, all three of those platforms? Yeah, so the, so the way in, in my example is um, I've essentially, I've, I've gone for network requests that have uh, a kind of a closure callback. So that's a fairly natural pattern on, on iOS itself to just have a, a closure off the end of a network request. And then in a command line interface, that means because it's asynchronous, you just need to spin up a, a kind of a run loop. So at the bottom of my kind of main file, I'm calling dispatch main. And then when I get to the end of my network request or um, going through the asynchronous business rules, whenever I've finished that process, I just call exit with, you know, either exit failure or exit success. And that kind of allows you to have this kind of asynchronous code running in something that's normally fairly synchronous. Uh, and then in the Vapor world, uh, it's probably the same for any kind of web framework. It's just taking the exact same again, um, the kind of completion handler based callback, um, but converting it to futures. So there's actually um, a fairly fairly simple way to do that. You get it from the request, you, you create um, a promise or a future, I can't remember the exact syntax now. But uh, you, you create a future and then basically you, you're going to call it into the networking client that will go do its asynchronous work. And then in the completion handler, you just resolve the future. Um, and then that's, that's kind of how, you know, you get that across all three platforms. Okay. Um, let's dive in a little bit into like the command line approach, because as, as you mentioned, if you just fired off a command line in you know, fire network request, your command line is going to get to the end of the the code and exits, and the request comes back sometime later. Um, can you talk a little bit about a little bit about the the run loop that you said? Um, how to set that up? Sure. So um, I think in in the actual example project I've got, essentially, all I'm doing is I'm making a copy of my networking client, and then performing the request I want, which is just fetching any data, I guess. Um, but at the very end of my, my main.swift file, I just call the kind of top level function dispatch main. And, and that's what will kind of kick things off. I believe that's the, the function that gets called in when you call the, the UI kit main. Um, I think that's the thing that's kicking off the run loops, etc. I'm probably completely wrong on that, but um, yeah. And then, so basically, so that's now you've, you've got the, um, the command line basically sitting there waiting for you to actually do something. Um, and then when your network request finishes and comes back, uh, that's when in the kind of completion handler, I just call exit and then give it some kind of exit status. And there's a couple of constants, one for exit success and one for exit failure. So that's kind of how you, you get in your kind of synchronous command line interface to, to execute asynchronous code for you. Okay. Um, another 
problem I ran into while hacking on like command line stuff is like I would write a command line, some stuff, it worked great on Mac. I ran on Linux and it, it was missing something. Um, how do you, how do you avoid code that's not going to run? It's not implemented yet in Linux. Uh, so this, this one's a little bit more painful. Um, this is where you just kind of, um, if you can get some kind of, if, it, if it's an open source project, then most um, kind of CI vendors will potentially give you some free resource. So you can, at that point, you can just be, you know, kicking off some kind of continuous integration process that will run it on Linux. Um, other than that, I think it's the kind of same thing I, I try and do for most most kind of projects is I make it as simple as possible to run the the different environments. So, um, so for so for this, for example, I might create like a a, a dot serve or um, just a little helper, which would essentially, you know, dockerize the the um, the app, and while it's doing the dockerization, it will kind of pull in all the dependencies it needs, and then start to build it, and then it will probably fail at that point. So there's, I don't know, if there's a, a foolproof way of doing it, but just trying to get it to run as as often as you possibly can in an automated fashion is probably probably going to get the most bang for your buck there. Okay, this sounds like a good justification to write unit tests for all all this code because it's going to get exercised every time you deploy on Linux. Yeah, I can support that. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, I think the so the beauty with these things, um, if you're so with modularization, if, if you're getting the boundaries right, then you should be able to get some pretty nicely unit testable code. Um, keeping in mind that we're immediately saying we're trying to avoid importing UI kit or any kind of UI. That means you kind of, some of the kind of obvious excuses of it's really hard to test UI stuff goes away. Um, and it means that we can, you, you can actually focus on actually if this is all, all kind of just model level code or controller code, we should be able to kind of get our dependency injection straight and, and make this stuff fairly testable. So that, that's kind of this. I think this is where I enjoy a lot of this kind of more frameworky type code because it is a lot easier to test than some of the um, UI-based code. Yeah, I can I can attest to that. Um, and I found that in my own solutions as well. That uh, breaking things up, modularizing, and encapsulating um, does make things a lot more testable. Um, Another question I have uh, is what what kind of libraries, third-party libraries that you that you would bring in um, using the package manager, uh, Swift package manager? What uh, have you found some good ones that you could recommend? Uh, like for instance, I know Alamo Fire is a really popular networking library that a lot of people use. Um, it seems like it would work for all three of these uh, platforms, and so you that would be one that you could pull in and use. Uh, is that correct? Uh, so Alamo Fire, I'm not, I'm not I'm not sure. So it's it's one of those ones where I think a lot of the stuff I've done recently, I've I've tried to do as dependency free as possible. Um, not not because I like to reinvent the wheel, but just because you know the the kind of core frameworks have been getting better all the time. So Alamo Fire, for example, I think I'd probably just jump straight to URL session these days. Um, but then. There are, so some of the libraries that I, I do like, like um, when I was looking at the Vapor 
side of things. Um, I'm not particularly fond of the, the kind of templating libraries. So immediately, because I, I don't do web enough, um, I just kept hitting issues. And you'd only find out about it when you when you hit in refresh in the browser, um, which is cool that you can do that. You can just refresh in the browser and it's kind of executing your template. But um, I kind of want to be more compile time safety. So that's where I've, I think I've started looking into stuff like the, the point free library for HTML. Um, but in, in terms of Swift packages, I think I've tried to keep quite light. So one of the use cases I did have um, for a project recently was I was using RN Crypto and, you know, that's a nice easy one to pull in. Um, I can't remember if we actually, I don't, I, 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 I can't remember if we actually tried that on Linux. I don't think it would, not sure if it would work. So um, again, yeah, it's probably another case for just, you can certainly try these things, just make sure you've got some kind of CI setup or a really simple way to run your code and get it to attempt to, to run inside Docker to find out these compatibility issues nice and early. Right, and yeah, find out, find out quickly and early whether they work or not. Um, also, what about, uh, what about local data storage? Um, like an SQL database would probably work for all three of these, uh, for, all, for these platforms as well, right? Is that what you would recommend? Um, so I think this is where um, my my approach might be to create an abstraction layer, I guess. So because um, it might make sense to use a particular vendor for SQL on the Vapor side. So I, I, I believe it supports like Postgres and MySQL, whereas if you're going to go to a native client, you, you might want to you might want to jump on core data or whatever app. Has. So you, you're probably better off creating an abstraction above that, that you can then just create little, little shims to go to the, the different kind of backend providers on the different platforms. I think that's the approach I probably go for these days. That makes sense. So I'm, I'm, if someone proposed this to me, like creating abstraction over the database layer, um, that would initially, in, that would immediately worry me of like we're creating too much abstraction. Um, do you have examples of like this working well, like hiding the core data away, um, so it could be Postgres or, or core data or whatever under, under the hood? Does that work well? Um, I think as a a counter example, I think the, so I've definitely seen it work poorly where um, I've worked on core data apps before and, you know, some of the problems have been of my own making that actually it's very easy for the implementation details to leak all throughout the app. Um, so I definitely, I've been bitten by that in the past and I think that's where I would probably be looking to yeah, move that abstraction away so that actually it can be using the full power of core data under the hood, but um, I probably don't need to know that from the, the client side. I think where, uh, so something we did recently that, that worked out really well was essentially we didn't need to know um, about any kind of relational database type stuff. So we, we built a kind of abstraction and it was essentially a, like a key value abstraction. So it looked a bit like a dictionary from the outside, but it had the ability to write to a plist or if you wanted to write to core data, you could, and you could 
fully map it out into a relational database. Um, or the other use case was to kind of write it out as um, a directory structure. So, you know, the key would be like the file name and the contents would be the value. So that was, those were kind of used within one app and it was kind of, they were, they were just called the storage strategies. So um, in some cases it made sense to have your data in a plist because you're only going to have like, you know, a handful of keys, but in other cases we'd have hundreds of records. So you don't want to be, you know, storing a plist with hundreds of records each time. So that would be where we potentially dump out to disk as either a core data backend or uh, just a flat file store. So I think that's, that's, that's something that has worked quite well. Um, and again, it, it, it's, it's, there's no silver bullets here. So you're not going to necessarily jump to that abstraction every time, but all depends on if that kind of makes sense for what you're doing at the time. Okay, that makes sense. So you have a, a dictionary type object that can write itself into any number of formats, the core data file system, and probably rehydrate itself. And one thing I have done to abstract away core data from the rest of the app is, you know, you've got your NS magic object, and, and I've done ways of making just a clean Swift struct out of that, the data, for a case where you're not really modifying it, you just need to show it. So I've, you know, made a method to just create a clean struct. So there's you can create a new view or whatever without any core data and its magic object uh, oddness. Um, so that's one thing that's worked for me. Yeah. I, 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 go ahead. So yeah, I, I've definitely seen that, that work, work really well. And I think that's kind of in, in one of the apps I was working on, they had, had realm, which kind of tries to act a bit like a normal object with some behavior tacked on, but you know, again, the abstraction leaked away, but I think, yeah, that, that general idea of, you know, convert to these really simple representations as soon as possible is really cool. And then um, I think taking the idea further, we, we, what we've kind of often done with, you know, the, the kind of interface segregation principle, trying to keep things small. If you've got this big object that, you know, it, maybe it represents a product within a shop. If you're going to pass that down to a view that doesn't need a whole product, then sometimes if that's going across the boundary, sometimes it makes sense to, know wrap that up into a smaller kind of view model and just chuck that over rather than chucking the whole object um because that that can easily lead to situations where people start trying to grab data they probably shouldn't have access to or they can accidentally grab the wrong kind of value from that object so if you kind of neuter it down to just the the core properties it needs then it, it makes things slightly more foolproof at, at the at the end I'm yeah I was just going to say that I, I agree with that approach or, and I've even done that myself where I've, I've converted objects uh, once they came out of the database into the simplistic or the, the, the pared down items of what I need um, and, and also to pull those and not couple them to the database and the, the, the format and the, and the structure that the database expects them to be in. Um, I did this with, uh, with Realm actually, in fact, where I encapsulated of all of the interaction with Realm in all into a database class um, so that uh, all the interactions that happened with that, with the information that needed to go to or from the database happened through that class. And so it was all encapsulated. So if some point in the future, we no longer wanted to use Realm, it was just a matter of changing that one class, rewriting that one class, my database class, so that uh, all the information coming to and from 
could still use that class, but under the hood, it was rewritten to use a different database other than Realm, and it could be swapped out for core data or you know any of those other solutions that you would choose. Yeah, I think that's, um, you, men you mentioned it there about having different representations. I think that's a, a really powerful technique that we can very easily forget. So I've definitely seen horror stories where people have um, taken the data they get from the network feed and literally just map that one-to-one -one within their applications. And then these monolithic data objects that were probably designed to be served on a website somewhere are now floating around about a whole um, kind of application. Whereas what, what we've done on, on, on different apps that's worked really well is we take the, the kind of the data from the network and we literally just map it into our kind of our own representation that we're going to use throughout the whole app. Um, almost creating our own kind of foundation types and those those become the kind of the common language used throughout the app and then that means that if the back end changes all we need to do now is just you know get the feed from a new back end map it to this common representation that that we kind of agreed on um, and yeah I think that's that's a really powerful technique to just say our our actual app is not dependent on on the back end or on a database, those are just ways of storing data throughout the rest of the app. We'll, we'll, we'll work with much simpler representations. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. That way, what you're getting from the, the service, how it comes down through the network or whatever format is an implementation detail. So if the server changes, like you can modify it one place and not blow everything up in your app. Sure. Um, so I feel a pick coming on. Um, based on what we've been talking, but uh, is there anything that we should cover before anything else we, we want to cover before we get to the picks? Nothing for me. Okay. Any last questions? Sounds like a resounding silence. So, um, yeah, let's get to the picks. Uh, Michael, what do you have for us? Um, all right. So my, my pick for the week would be, uh, uh, I guess a little shameless plug for myself here that, uh, I recently published a GitHub repo, on um, how an example of how you can use um, MVVM with coordinators and integrate that into Swift UI. Because um, I was having some, it was, it was just a, a personal challenge I was um, experiencing where the Swift UI seems to be driving people towards the MVVM structure, but coupling those view models and view controllers, or, or in, in, in Swift UI, they're called views, uh, they're coupling them all together, especially when you're using navigation controllers. Um, so for instance, the navigation view, um, inside of that, when you specify a navigation button, it requires you to specify the view that it is going to be going to when the user clicks on the navigation button. And so um, in, with, when you have coordinators, um, it's also, I've heard them called routers, uh, where you have a, an abstraction above that that kind of controls the flow of your app. Um, that, doesn't, that doesn't really allow, the, the, those, that navigation button doesn't allow you to specify what view you're going to um, from an external source, like, like what a coordinator is supposed to do. A coordinator would be, its job would be to specify what view is to be the next view in the stack after a user clicks uh, a navigation button. And so I I'm, I'm wrote a repo that kind of hacks the navigation button in order to demonstrate how you can push that, that control back up to the coordinator 
to let the coordinator determine what view uh, is to go next. And so it's, it's a little hacky. Um, and hopefully Swift UI 2.0 or, you know, the next version will, um, will be a little bit more supportive of that structure. Uh, but uh, for now, it's, it, I've, there, I've come up with an example of how, um, how you can get away with it. <laughs> so um, I'll, be, I'll publish a link to it uh, in, the, in the comments. That sounds pretty cool. Um, yeah, we've had, so the coordinator pat pattern is something that described, or at least introduced to the iOS world by Suresh Conley, who's been on the show. I don't think we've ever talked about the pattern itself, um, but that sounds like a cool episode to even talk about this product and how it works, or talk about the coordinator pattern and how it works with SwiftUI. That would be a cool thing to talk about. Just uh, throwing that out there. Um, I'm gonna do one pick, and that my pick is based on what we discussed briefly. Um, have either of you gentlemen read the book Domain-Driven Design? I have not. Okay. I, I haven't, but I've heard the term. Okay. Um, a lot of the concepts that we got into, I, I was at least introduced to um, through that book. Um, it, it's been around for quite a while. I'm not sure when it was actually written. I read it when I was doing more back-end work versus native stuff. But a lot of the concepts that I, I've learned that I think a lot of the iOS community has not caught up with um, are contained in domain-driven design. And I, I was thinking about this book recently because um, Veronica Ray, who's been on the show before, uh, tweeted out, hey, what are some books that have really helped um, you know, senior lead staff type engineers um, really level up their design skills? And this is one um, for me. So the, uh, the what I think some of you talked about of you know, taking a complex data model and just extracting a, a small piece off of it. That's something I picked up from domain-driven design. Um, so I'm just going to make that pick. And there's a small version that's online. Um, I, when I first looked at it, I thought the domain-driven design quickly PDF was like 30 bucks. Uh, turns out that's free, but you can buy a print version if you want. Um, most of what you need is going to be in the, in the quickly uh, PDF. Um, I ended up buying the book afterwards, and there was some cool stuff in there but very, almost no one's read the entire book. It, it, it's pretty long. Um, I'm not sure all of it translates well, but the concepts are, are very solid. And if you're looking to level up your kind of design architecture skills, especially in, in mobile development, um, this, is, this is good because a lot of the concepts are, are some very, uh, they, they translate very well to mobile development. So domain-driven design is my pick and we'll drop these in the show notes. So look them up. Our readers and our listeners can look them up. Um, Paul, do you have a pick for us? I'm feeling under pressure there because those are two very good picks. Um, so I guess my pick is um, it's a 2020, uh, 2012 talk by Gary Bernhardt called Boundaries. Um, my colleagues probably hate me because I mention this nearly every week because it's, it's a really good talk. Um, I don't know if anyone's seen Gary do a talk before but um, he talks very polished and he's got a um, very polished podcast where he goes through some pretty cool stuff um, and this this boundaries talk is kind of it's it's about building these kind of modular units um, around the, the the idea of a functional core imperative shell so I know that kind of got a little bit of attention a few months back um, in the IELTS community so um, this is just a really good kind of reference talk, uh, brilliant speaker and it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of 
now that we've got Swift, then we can bring a lot more kind of functional concepts in. The, the kind of high level idea, I guess, is building these small functional cores that are really well tested. And then you just put the kind of imperative code, you know, your networking, your disk access, all the ugly stuff around the outside of these kind of cores. And then you, you essentially build up loads of these little units, I guess. So um, kind of ties into some of the, the, the kind of thinking I've been doing a lot recently with modularization and how do you build these, these kind of nice boundaries between your kind of responsibilities. So um, yeah, that's my pick. Okay, very cool. Uh, I, feel, I believe I've seen that talk. I haven't heard much talk about it in the mobile community, so it's cool to, to hear some. Um, so that's had some influence here. Do you, do you have any blog posts that cover that, those kind of, type of concepts? Um, I can try dig them out. It was, uh, it was quite a while back now, but um, yeah, I'm sure there was a spate of two or three of them, so I'll try to dig them out and, and get them sent over. Okay. Awesome. Um, well, if our listeners want to get a hold of you, Paul, how can they how can they find you? Um, I am on Twitter at uh, Paulio87. I generally just literally announce blog posts that I've written. So, um, but yeah, if anyone gets in contact, then I'll be sure to respond. Uh, very cool. So, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I, I gained a new. Um, perspective of what you could do with cross-platform, you know, Swift development and how you can use it to do CI and testing. So I thought that was some cool stuff. Um, so thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. For everyone else, we'll see you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.